What I thought I'd talk about tonight is something about the relationship of metta practice and vipassana practice. Something about the way that metta practice is a support for vipassana practice. And it's the totally appropriate talk to give tonight, I think, because uh, half the people here are going to stay tomorrow and do a vipassana course. And the other half are going to go back and return to their lives. And that's doing a Vipassana course as well. There's a certain way in which it's quite clear to me that Vipassana practice is just the same as life practice. People who stay and the people who go are going to be doing the same thing. They're going to try as best they can to pay attention to every moment of their experience with a mind that's open and relaxed, composed, and alert. People who are here are going to do it slower. Otherwise, it's really just the same. There's a way in which it seems quite clear to me that metta practice is not so different from vipassana practice. It's quite clear that the instructions are different and the technique is different. One time after I had done some metta practice, I'd been practicing for a while, and I'd come to do some more intensive practice, and I was feeling very in an excited mood and high and clear, and came to me in a certain way that I had a new realization about metta practice. And I came to an interview, and I came to see Sharon, and I really came in with my exciting new vision. And I said, I've really got it quite clear. Metta is just the same as Vipassana. And I went on and on and on about how it was. And then I left the interview. And as soon as I was out of the room, I thought to myself, what an idiot. I can't believe I just said that. Made a fool out of myself. She must think I'm an idiot. I mean, clearly, it's different instructions. It's a different technique. What can she be thinking of me? I want to tell you something about the ways in which I think they're not so different. And the way I'm going to do that is I'll review for you the instructions that we had all week, and I'll tell you something about the theory of why, technically, why these instructions work to do what they do, and what the fruits of this practice are. And then we'll review again in an overview way, what the instructions are for vipassana practice, and what the technique is, and what the rationale for the technique, and what the fruits of that practice are. And then we'll see how the same they are. What we've been doing all this week is really developing this really great and beautiful science of metta really was important to present the whole of metta practice in one week, even though that was a little fast, because really it's seeing the overall practice that really gives one a taste, a notion of how it comes to work and what it's meant to do. If time had been no consideration, if we had all the time in the world to do metta practice, we probably would start with ourselves and with a benefactor, and just stay with that 
for a considerable length of time. We'd probably stay with it until we were really very comfortably and deeply established in that, till the mind was quite concentrated, till really concentration had developed, until the heart was filled with goodwill and composure and steadfastness and one-pointedness. Probably stay with it until there were no barriers at all to the flowing of the sense of love from the heart. It's a wonderful, pleasant feeling, a certain amount of rapture in the mind and body. Begin to feel really uh, an understanding for that line in the benefits of metta that suggests that people feel protected when they do metta practice. We feel protected when we feel safe. We feel safe when our fears are gone. When we're filled with love, we're fearless. That's really how I understand that line. When my fears are gone, I feel very safe. And I feel very safe in this whole cosmos and very protected. So we'd practice and practice until we were really established in that sense of love, the sense of love flowing, the sense of feeling the love. And at that point, we'd open ourselves up, given all the time in the world, to the next category, the next realm out of persons in our lives, intimates and people we know and like well, our close relationships, our friends, people about whom we would say that we love them a lot, but we have certain tiny areas of difficulties with them, little glitches in our relationships, little rough edges. Who doesn't have a glitch in a relationship? Everybody does. I don't like myself all the time. How could I like anybody else all the time? Something about somebody, even our dearest, has something about it. When we're not in a dwelling in a place of tremendous love, often we tend to focus on the glitches rather than on the whole person tend to be thinking this person would be wonderful if I could only fix up this one little part, then it would be great. There's a way in which when we are really filled with love and enjoying the feeling of being filled with love, it's quite easy to turn our vision towards people who are our warm intimates, our close friends, and let that pleasure of the lovingness just erase those edges I think that probably sometimes we remember the edges more than the rest because they're the areas where we feel frightened, that somebody maybe is reflecting our shadow to us, or somebody is really mirroring to us some area of our own anxiety and fear comes up. We've been practicing and we're well established in love. We're relatively fearless. And when we're fearless, those are insignificant, those parts. We don't see them or we excuse them, or we understand them, or we forgive them in the context of the general sense of good feeling in which we hold people. So you can really see that the science, it's really a science of metta. We start with ourselves in a benefactor to soften the heart, to open it. And starting with ourselves in a benefactor is, so to speak, getting your foot in the door 
going to get our foot in the door of the heart and try to open it slowly and slowly and slowly so that it stays totally open in the entire realm, towards the entire realms of beings. Now when we go from including our well-loved people into our circle of well-wishing, kind of rev up the engine a little bit and the heart is more filled with love and as the practice continues, given all the time in the world, as the mind becomes more composed and more established in composure, those good feelings in the mind and the body of rapture and happiness are amplified so that we really begin to feel benevolent even towards neutral people that we didn't know before. And so consequently, the next makes sense that the next instruction in this practice is to turn the attention to that category of people who are neutral people, people we don't know. It was very instructive for me the first time that I worked with Veta practice right here in this building because I discovered that there are no neutral people. That the moment I was given that instruction and I tried to find a neutral person, find that everybody you've already made an opinion about. They walk too fast, they walk too slow, they fidget too much, they eat too fast, something or other. But we, or they dress very well, they don't dress well at all. There's just a million little comments and criticisms that we've made about everyone. Not to say that that's a naughtiness of the mind, it's just that I was amazed to discover it as a tendency of mind. It's so tedious. It's amazing to find how much time and energy we use on a marking scale of good, not good, good, not good, pretty good, more good, less good, bad, all the time. As, no wonder that at the end of the day we're exhausted. And that's even on the, that's even on the neutral people. That's on the neutral people. When I did this practice for the first time, I took as a sort of neutral person um, a woman who lived across the hall from me. And actually, it wasn't even all that neutral. I actually had a little bit of um, antipathy, a little bit of aversive feeling about her. So I figured it would be good to kind of adopt her and see what happened. Because, uh, actually, because she clumped down the hall too loud. (laughs) Imagine spending any mind energy on not liking somebody who clumped down the hall. So I adopted her in my mind and I began to do my meta-resolutions, my meta-intentions about her. And I was amazed to find that within a day, I really had changed my opinion of her. She still clumped down the hall, but then I began to feel badly about her because it was for her, because I could begin to imagine that maybe her mind was very restless, maybe she was agitated, maybe that was what was causing her to clump. I began to feel more (laughs) compassionate. Really, if the mind is composed and quiet and sensitive and at ease, we're all pretty quiet here. So I began to imagine all reasons that she might not feel so well. And then I began to really feel compassionate about her. Then when she missed breakfast one day, I was worried that she'd slept in. I was thinking about bringing her breakfast. It's really, you adopt somebody in your heart and they become like your child. I began to imagine, what if everybody in the world adopted someone they didn't know in their heart? You know how many of us adopt a child to save the children or something, rather than send some money so that child can be fed? What about if we all adopted a person in every country in the world? Imagine what the world would be like. 
So as we develop the science of metta, what we do is we put the foot in the door of the heart and then we nudge it open. We say, come on, doesn't it really feel better to be loving? It really does. And we just don't know that. It really does. We haven't, nobody's told us that. That becomes really clear when we come to the category of the enemy or the person or persons with whom we've had difficulty. Truly, when I came to practice here the first time, I hadn't done any serious or intensive metta practice, but I sort of knew about it. I'd heard about it, and I knew about the progression more or less. I hadn't done it, but I knew that we were ultimately, that I was ultimately, after some time, going to get up to the enemy. And I thought to myself, piece of cake, I don't have any enemies. It's going to be fine. And really, I passed through my mind back and forth throughout the weeks that I was working up to then. I don't have any enemies. I really don't have anybody that I'm having a vendetta with or a war. When I came to do the enemy, I was amazed to find what a long grudge list I had. (laughs) I don't have people with whom I'm having outright conflict. But tucked away in my heart, when I allowed it to open, were three years ago so-and-so said a not nice thing to me, ten years ago so-and-so did me wrong. That's all somewhere tucked away. I've even forgotten it. I remembered slights that I had long forgotten. It was tremendously instructive. Nothing gets lost in there. It's all there. It's hidden away, and it's waiting for an opportunity to leave. And as we practice, the heart opens, and we have a chance again to relook at all of those hesitations of the heart and make a new decision about them. That's really what it is. When you think about it, why do we keep all those grudge lists? They seem so silly. So-and-so slighted me. So-and-so did me an injustice a long time ago, even if they really did. I think one of the reasons we do it is out of fear again. So-and-so did us an unkindness, or did us an injustice, or did us a hurt, really. I think that uh, somehow there's the imagining that should we let down our our, our guard and forgive them and forget about it, that we'll somehow be vulnerable to further attack or further misuse. So we have to kind of keep updating our list of who to be on the alert for. I think that's one reason, a certain amount of fear. I think the other reason that we keep the grudge list is it um, keeps us smug in a certain way. Everybody that we have something that we feel that they did wrong kind of one-ups us. And if we need to have a little list about how good I am compared to other people, we remember how people didn't do well. Not consciously, but if we need in some way to buck up our impression of ourselves. They're both extra. We don't need to buck up our impression of ourselves. We're fine. And letting go of our guard doesn't really make us vulnerable, doesn't make us naive. Somehow maybe the psyche, years and years ago, or decades and decades ago, thought that we'd be vulnerable. But as adults, being loving doesn't make us naive. We know how to take care of ourselves. Those reasons for the grudge list usually don't make any sense anymore. You can really let them go. 
And it's wonderful how in intensive practice, if there has been enough time for the sense of lovingness really to be firmly established in the heart and for really the sense of pleasure about how nice it feels, how wonderful it feels to just be suffused with love is established in us. How loath we are to retake up the grudge list again. It's as if the mind gets to make a choice. It does. I either have a choice now. I can continue to remain happy and loving and contented and feel rapturous and wonderful, or I can remind myself of my grudge and hold on to it. That's what happens. The heart opens, 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 opens. Whoops, here's the thought of this person. Close. Doesn't feel good. And you get to have a first-hand awareness of the heart closing doesn't feel good. And then you get to make the choice. Say, I don't, this doesn't feel good. I'd rather be loving. Should I keep this grudge or should I be happy? Uh, you may remember, if you're old enough or if you did it, that when Est was very um, sort of popular, Werner Earhart, who popularized West, Est, who developed it, had a kind of a catchphrase that he used to use. He said, people would rather be right than happy. I don't actually think that's true. I think people would rather be happy. I think they just don't know that it's possible. And that this is a practice that allows us systematically to discover that we aren't victims. That we get to make a choice about mind states. And we get to make a choice about which mind states are most pleasant for us. And then we feel wonderful having made the choice to be loving. We'll begin to talk now a little bit about the crossover between metta practice and vipassana practice. And I want to do it by just spending a moment talking about the fruits of metta practice. We've mentioned it in the general sense of lovingness. But I think by looking at the fruits of both practice, we'll see their interconnectedness. Fruits of metta practice is a heart that's open and relaxed and fearless and at ease that naturally generates friendliness and generosity and compassion and equanimity. Those are the qualities of the unrestrained heart. And as we discover that, it reinforces itself. Somebody asked the other night about Can we go out in the world in this kind of a loving place? I mean, the world is generally not so loving and often not so loving. Don't we need to protect ourselves? In fact, this is the best protection. First of all, it's a protection against fear in a world that's often difficult. And as Sharon really um, described in the metta riddle the other night, about walking in the forest and being attacked by a desperado. Metta practice really blurs the boundaries between ourselves and others. And so in doing that, it really erases fear. There's no one to be frightened, no one to be frightened of. It's really a sense of oneness, sameness, allness with all it is. 
It's a very protected feeling. There's an expression that um, you may have heard in a Dharma talk somewhere that uh, the Dharma protects those who protect the Dharma. And I didn't understand it very well in the beginning. It didn't was sort of like a roundabout statement and I wasn't quite clear about it. I think for me it doesn't mean that it protects us from what is the natural order of life doesn't protect us from getting old or getting sick or getting infirm or being in an earthquake or a landslide. Those, I think, are part of the natural order of the natural world, and they're all right. That's just what, what, what things are like. I think what it protects us from is the kind of perturbation of mind, the upset that comes with the fear that accompanies any of those situations. There's a lot of pain in the natural world, a lot of difficulty, and the relaxed, open heart responds with compassion. There's a lot of wonderful beauty and moments of incredible joy in the world, and the relaxed, open heart responds with sympathetic joy. And it's the ability of the heart to acknowledge the pain and the joys of the world and to stay balanced and to respond with impartial goodwill in all circumstances that really is equanimity. Those are the fruits of metta practice. to talk a little bit about vipassana practice and its instructions and how it works and what the fruits are. The instructions for vipassana practice are calm down and pay attention to everything. I had a notion at one point that in California people have, lots of people have license plates with kind of acronyms, clever acronyms on their license plate. I was going to get a license plate that said P-A-T-E, pay attention to everything. But then I thought probably a lot of people would think I was a French cook and that that said pâté. <laughs> so I didn't do it. Sometimes people think that vipassana practice is breath practice because there's so much attention to returning to the breath. But it's really a practice of paying attention to everything in an open and relaxed way. And in order to have an open and relaxed ability to pay attention to everything, we choose the breath, which is an experience that's always here, to bring the attention back to as a way of composing the attention. The breath is always with us. Everybody breathes. If people don't have respiratory ailments, it's a non-conflictual, neutral object. It's always changing, always present, always available. Just like the walking, when we walk, is a neutral, continual, plain behavior to bring the attention to, to calm the mind down. It's really two parts to the Vipassana instruction. Calm the mind down and then pay attention in a full open way to everything that happens. Pay attention to what happens 
in all realms of experience, not just to what it is that's happening, but what's true. Most importantly, what's true about what's happening. So we pay attention to the whole domain of physical sensations, all of, watch we, all of which we watch and they're arising and passing away, and the breath and all the physical sensations that make up the breath are one aspect of the realm of physical sensations, arising and passing away, and all the other physical sensations arising and passing away. And we pay attention to the um, feeling tone of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral that accompanies every moment of experience. And we come to find that the feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral is always arising and passing away. With each new moment of experience, it's a feeling tone, changing and changing and changing. One of those three, changing all the time. Pay attention to the whole realm of mind states. Mind full of thoughts, mind empty of thoughts. Mind restless, mind calm. Sometimes people think of mind states when they practice only as the dramatic uh, or difficult mind states. A friend of mine said she was here doing some very long practice and she said at one point in her practice she discovered that a new mind state had arisen that she really couldn't quite name. It wasn't familiar to her. And she said, by and by she figured out that what the mind state was was calm. (laughs) And she was just so not used to being calm that she didn't recognize it. So mind states, there's always a mind state present. We We say things like when a mind state arises, we tend to think that a mind state is dramatic. Mind states are always present. Body states are always present. Sometimes very subtle, sometimes very blissful. Sometimes body state, body all dissolved. But some awareness of what's true about the body, what's true about the mind in this moment, changing moment to moment to moment. And the last domain, the last area of experience that we pay attention to, which really subsumes, is all the domains of experience. It's a way of seeing all of our experience in a way that brings us to the truth of experience. It's a way of seeing how things are. It's a domain of mindfulness of the Dharma. We understand the mind states that are the difficult hindrance mind states that cloud the mind, and we understand them in how they are and in their passing away arising and passing away aspect. We understand all of the balancing mind states that are the seven factors of enlightenment that develop and come into fruition and come into balance as the mind becomes alert and clear. We see how those different mind states arise and pass away. Most particularly, we begin to see begin to become aware of the insights of this practice. This is, after all, insight practice. And we have insight into the characteristics of experience, what's true. Most crucially, we get to see that what's true is that everything that arises passes away. We get to see about impermanence. In a certain way, 
everybody here knows that everything is impermanent. I mean, if we took a poll or asked the question, is everything impermanent, do things change? Everyone would say yes. If we know it on an absolutely visceral level, then our life has changed. Our fears are rooted in the notion that time is changeless, or that things don't change. This dreadful mind state, this dreadful body state, will be here forever. Makes a tremendous amount of suffering in the mind. The absolute assurance that everything is changing and nothing is here forever makes us able to open to pain, open to pain in the mind, open to pain in the body. Doesn't make it unpain, it just makes it bearable. A tremendous amount of tension and suffering is created in the mind by holding on. We have pleasant experience in the mind, in the body, and we want it to last. A pleasant, or what we consider to be a pleasant time of our life, and we don't want it to pass. So we hang on. And the passing is not the cause of suffering. It's the holding on, the tension in the mind from holding on that really is the suffering. When we see that things are changing, holding on is fruitless. We can relax and be with our life fully as it is right now. Actually, all of life, every piece of experience is arising, being born, and dying, as are we. Getting older, we get old, we get infirm. If we get old, we get infirm, or we get sick earlier than that. If you look at the way of seeing that, how all of life experience is continual accommodating to grief and loss. But accommodating is possible when we say, This is the natural order of things. When we know this is the natural order of things, then we can be with what's happening. We can even be with dying. Most extraordinary story that I heard from a friend of mine in a religious community told about the death of a friend of hers in that religious community woman in her mid-thirties was dying of cancer. Both of them clear in their spiritual understanding. And the mother of the woman who was dying was present as well, supporting her daughter in her illness and at the time of her death. Mother, also a woman of considerable deep spiritual vision and conviction and really deep understanding about this is the order of things. Things change. Everything that is born 
dies. In the moment that Rosemary was dying, uh, in the very moment of her death, she had some distress, couldn't breathe, and fear arose in her face. And her mother was able to hold her hand and say, that's all right, Rosemary, you're just dying. That's extraordinary, isn't it? That's so extraordinary. If we really know this is the natural order of things, if we really open to life fully, can open to death fully, we haven't missed anything, we've lived each moment, we only have moments. We get to see quite clearly that everything is changing and there's an unsatisfactoriness in experience because it doesn't last. There's also a kind of ephemeral beauty in experience because we know it doesn't last. So we need to wake up and notice it. In its impermanence, we begin to feel the emptiness, the insubstantiality, the ephemeral quality of all experience. Begin to see that life happens, but not to anyone. Bodies arise and pass away. Personalities develop and change all the time. Every aspect of all of that is always changing. And there's nothing that's the subject of that change. There's a particular line in a particular book about vipassana practice. It's actually two lines. It's probably my favorite two lines of all the lines I've read about practice ever. Do you know the story about Pascal? When Pascal, in his spiritual search, suddenly had a vision, kind of a religious vision of how the world was and was stunned and freed and exalted by his vision. He wrote that vision on a little piece of paper and he sewed it into the lining of his coat And he wore that coat every day for the rest of his life. It was sewn into the lining of his coat when he died. I think to myself, if I were going to sew something into the lining of my coat, it would be these two lines from a book called Tranquility and Insight by Amadeo Solelaris, describing Vipassana practice and how we do it, mindfulness practice. These are the two lines. It is through the mindful observation of what is actually there that the delusion which makes us perceive that which is impermanent and transient as permanent and lasting is gradually dispelled. Liberation consists in experiencing and understanding fully and clearly that everything is impermanent and seeing that there is quite literally nothing to worry about. So if those are the insights of vipassana practice, what are the fruits? Fearlessness. Fear is replaced by love, in the meta sense of love, impartial love. As we arrive through clear seeing at right understanding, and we begin to understand the nature of our suffering, 
and the end of suffering and the possibility of the end of suffering become aware of the degree of suffering all about us because of lack of wisdom, because of ignorance, then we grow enormously in our compassion for all suffering beings. As we begin really in the depths of our being to appreciate ephemerality that everything changes, nothing lasts, it's all empty and changing, then we have such a sense of sympathetic joy at each moment of pleasure and each moment of beauty. Knowing it in its changing quality, we bring all of our attention to the very moment of joy, the very moment of beauty. As we really come to experience how everything is arising and passing away, according to conditions, in a way that's lawful and eternal and impersonal, we develop a certain amount of equanimity with what is. This is what is. So you see, in a sense, I hope you see that I think the fruits of practice are not so different, in fact, the same. I want to say a few more things about equanimity um, or my understanding about it. We just got to talk about it this afternoon at the last part of our practice together. Say something because sometimes people are not so clear about equanimity. The near enemy of equanimity is indifference. It's a sense of remoteness. This is nothing to me. All individuals are heir to their own karma, so I can be indifferent to it. It's not that at all. It's not that at all. It's actually quite the opposite. It's actually opening fully to the whole panorama of what's happening with compassion, with joy, and with a balance under the two of them. It's not less feeling. It's for me, broader range of feeling. Maybe less sentimentality and more depth of understanding. Certainly does not mean non-application to social issues or not taking action, which is another misunderstanding of being heir to one's own karma. It actually allows us in situations where social action or intervention is appropriate to intervene in a way that's balanced and helpful and, and uh, actually brings some wisdom into the situation rather than from a way that's off balance. I used to worry about equanimity, that I'd get too much of it and that I'd become like a zombie. There were, uh, it doesn't happen, clearly. Uh, Sometimes when I'd I'd be practicing for a while, the heart and the mind become so composed and it's just so still. There's so little movement of the heart. I went for a walk one day out here in these very woods and it was the spring and the flower, the trees were budding. All of a sudden I came on a scene with a branch and a bud opening and a bird landed on the branch. And it's the sort of scene where normally the heart leaps with joy when it sees a beautiful scene like that. 
And I saw it. I saw it clearly. And my heart didn't leap anywhere. just was quiet. And I thought to myself, I died. This is a weird practice. I've so quietened in the heart that I'm not like a real person anymore. Then when I thought about it a little bit, because I really was startled, I reflected on it, I realized that that wasn't true, that actually I was totally happy, was totally happy. Nothing has to leap anywhere. I was totally happy to see that. I thought I'd also tell you a real-world story to balance that not leaping, uh, because we don't go back in the world and go around with that degree of quietness in the heart, nor do I want it in my life. This story happened about five years ago. It was on the day, the afternoon of a day, that a uh, two-week Vipassana retreat was starting in California, and I was to go and teach it that night. That afternoon, one of my daughters, my one of my daughters, arrived at my house, hanging around, talking, and just a little casual conversation, presumably casual. And she said, um, "How would you and Dad like to take Johan um, and me to uh, dinner tonight?" That's her husband. And I said, "Well, that sounds like a nice idea, but I can't do it because I'm going to teach." A few minutes later, she said. How would you and Dad like to take you and me to dinner tonight? And then I'd go through the whole have to teach tonight. A few more times around. So you sure you don't want to take us to dinner tonight? So I look at her and she looks at me in a sly way. I said, Don't you really want to celebrate that you're gonna be a grandmother? And I was hysterical. I was beside I leaped up and down. I was so happy for her. And I was so happy for me, and I was so happy for you, and I was so happy for her baby-to-be. And I shouted, and in the middle, and I shouted. Later on, she said, I'm so sorry I didn't have a video camera. (laughs) In the middle of my carrying on, the telephone rang. I picked up the telephone. It was a friend of mine. She said, hello, this is so-and-so. And I said, I can't talk now. I'm hysterical. And I hung it up. And I finished the shouting, and the four of us went out for an early dinner, and I went to teach the Vipassana course. (laughs) That's what it is in the life. We don't become zombies. We have a whole wide range of ability to respond. And we respond in a way that's balanced. We have a big, broad range of capacity to be joyful, and capacity to be sad, and capacity to recuperate under both of them. Perhaps in a fundamental way, the fruits of both practices, the fruits of metta and the fruits of vipassana practice, are that equanimity of heart. Equanimity of heart out of which comes the ability to respond with compassion in painful situations, the ability to respond with sympathetic joy in happy situations, and the ability in all situations to maintain the sense of impartial goodwill in all directions, towards oneself and in all directions. There's a certain way in which it doesn't matter where you start with vipassana practice or with metta practice. When you start with metta practice, we practice systematically opening the heart to love, 
so that the heart relaxes and becomes fully open and calm and clear. There's an intimation in the end of the Metta Sutta that the heart that's fully reposed in love, fully eased and alert in love, will be a heart in which wisdom and freedom arises as well. We can begin by practicing vipassana, by practicing seeing clearly. As we practice systematically, paying attention to all aspects of our experience, we see clearly what's true about all aspects of our experience. We become rooted in wisdom. The wisdom of what's true opens the heart to goodwill, to metta, to compassion, to mudita, to equanimity. They're quite intertwined as practices. In my life, I understand my life practice, which I do in the world and I do here as well at different paces, as paying attention in every moment to all aspects of my experience to see what's true and paying attention to the nuances of the heart at all times. They're the same. Trying to be open in the heart, trying to maintain that calmness and openness of heart and mind that allows us to see clearly. Think about it just for a moment, those people who have done Vipassana practice before, that the instruction for balancing, paying attention to everything with coming back to a neutral calming object like the breath or the walking is a way of developing the ability to balance the mind from alertness and awareness and clear seeing to coming back to balance and compose itself when the alertness is clouded, when clear seeing is clouded, when there's too much restlessness, when agitation is in the mind, when we can't see clearly. Some sort of mind storm is there. We come back to the breath as a neutral object to calm down. We come back to the walking as a neutral object to allow the heart and mind to calm and clear. Can come back to some metta for yourself. A mind storm arises that clouds the vision and upsets the body and difficult feelings come up in the, in the body and the mind is filled with difficult feelings. We can bring the attention to rest in the breath, can bring the attention to rest in some metta recitations for ourselves to balance the heart and then let it go. Let the breath present itself in your awareness again. And then open up the field of attention as it will to wherever awareness arises. They're not really separate practices. We learn them along two different tracks. And the way of learning them is technically quite different. Once we have a sensitivity and a familiarity with both of them, then we can use them in quite an intertwined way. Sometimes I think to myself that metta practice 
is teaching the heart, learning to open impartially with friendliness to all beings. And vipassana practice is training the heart to open fully with friendliness to all aspects of experience. And they're not so different. And I think they both mean freedom. I thought that I would end by reading a little part of the middle of the Metta Sutta. where it suggests that we should wish in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease whatever living beings there may be whether they are weak or strong omitting none the great or the mighty medium, short or small the seen and the unseen those living near and far away those born and to be born May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and fully unbounded. Let's sit for a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 13, 1992. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.